Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 3rd of October, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. This week, the Minister for Justice asked the Cabinet to, to consider the Civil Liability Bill, aimed at preventing people from benefiting from homicide. Under existing laws, a killer cannot inherit any part of the family estate if they have killed their husband or their wife. If, however, the convicted person has held a joint tenancy, they become the surviving owner of the property. The new bill hopes to prevent a spouse from financially benefiting from killing their partner. The the bill, which was originally proposed by Fianna Fáil, goes further in that the government also wants to prevent anyone gaining financially from the death of another person if they've hired someone else to carry out that killing. Margaret Martin is a Director of Women's Aid and joins us now. Margaret, I think a lot of people will remember the killing of Celine Cawley by her husband Eamon Lillis in 2008 and that really gives the backdrop to this proposed legislation. It does, and I think it's a really welcome development to have this final loophole shored up. So, to, obviously, there should never be any financial incentive for somebody who plans to kill their partner, and particularly in situations where there there's a lot of, of assets available. Um, there was legislation that covered that, but this was one remaining loophole. I mean, something like this, obviously, is we need to make sure that all the deterrents possible are there, and it is something that we highlighted in our femicide research um, the discrepancy between manslaughter sentences for intimate partners being three uh, years almost less than for other males. But also it's a very painful process for a mm. family. And then to realise, you know, there's all this, this trials and, and, and further distress going to be caused by something like that. And the fact that somebody may benefit from it is a very, it's really rubbing salt in very painful wounds. Is it possible that it will result in fewer killings in that it'll take away some motivation in some cases? Well, the interesting thing, I think, Michael, about the whole thing about femicide is, you know, we've been collecting data since 1996, and the number of femicides has actually increased over the last, or sorry, decreased over the last number of years. But we don't know why that is. I mean, we haven't got enough information because we don't have domestic homicide reviews. So we've no information that can tell us, you know, why this has happened. So, for example, in 2017, there were eight uh, 
femicides as we would call them, whereas the average over the previous number of years would have been 10. Um, the year before that there was two and the year before that was five. So with, there's quite a significant decrease. So something seems to be working. So far, five women have been killed violently this year. And hopefully we reach the end of the year with that number being increased. But really, I think one of the things that would make a huge difference is if we had domestic homicide reviews, we would actually have better information to be able to say, okay, this seems to be working. There's greater protection or there's whatever it is that's making the difference. I would actually love to know what it is, but you can only speculate on that at the moment. Um, but I think these kind of things, if the sentence, you know, one of the things that's good about the new domestic violence legislation when it's commenced is that if you're in an intimate relationship and there's any criminal charge, whether that's from common assault all the way through to manslaughter or homicide, that the intimate relationship will be seen as an aggregating factor, whereas in the past it seemed to be seen as a mitigating factor. So that discrepancy in sentences between intimate partners and other perpetrators should be removed and possibly they will actually serve longer sentences to give an even greater deterrent to people for using information and the trust that's there in a relationship. But we really need that background information that they have in other jurisdictions that can inform a process of risk assessment and continue to decrease those numbers. To what extent though, without hearing firsthand from the killer, is it possible to do anything other than speculate as to what the motivation was? Isn't it probable that it's coincidental that the rates go down, as is the case now, or if they go up again uh, and has to do uh, with the individuals rather than the environment and the circumstances that we're in? Yes, but I, I think there are some things that are happening, you know, in terms of having good data or better data really in the States and the UK where they know, for example, that women in abusive relationships are getting out of those relationships earlier. And the longer you stay in those kind of relationships, very often it's much more difficult to become trapped in those. But I mean, the, certainly when, when you, it, I, it's a while since you would probably have even seen the graph that we had for the charts, but there is quite a pattern there and it, there's there's quite a significant decrease over the last number of years. The lowest prior to that was in 2010 where there were six women killed. Prior to that, it had hovered around 10, 12, and in, in 2000, uh, and 1996 when we did it first, it was 19, so it was a staggering amount of women who had been killed. So I think there is, I think if we do start to get more information, we know, for example, from our other jurisdictions and from our own experience, that separation is a very high risk. Um, and we know from the tragedy that happened up in, in Laos that, that they, again, it was, it was when somebody was separating that they were, um, the names escaped me just at the moment, but Sharon, wasn't it, that, that was leaving her partner, that that is a very much a risk factor. When you know what the risk factors are, you can actually put in safety plans to help address those risks. And I think those can make a difference then over time. Uh, and... Is it a, a, a thing that people can snap a, on occasion? Uh, I, I mean, if you're in an abusive relationship, uh, it, it uh, can go from bad to worse uh, to a situation where there is no return. It can't, yes. I mean, obviously there are. But the interesting thing as well about our figures is that the whole issue of, of you know, um, the number of cases where there was, there was uh, mental health issues, which was actually and where somebody was not charged, or there was a verdict of guilty or not guilty, just reason to insanity, which you may call a moment of insanity, that that was only in eight of the cases. 
Um, and I think, you know, the, the really what we're trying to do in collecting all of this data ourselves is people commonly think that, you know, this is a normal relationship. Something has just happened and the temperature has escalated and it ends up with somebody being killed. Very often there is a very clear pattern there. There's death threats for a long time. There's, you know, then a woman maybe decides to leave. She may not know and the people around her may not know that that's actually mm. a time of increased risk, etc. So, you know, I think quite recently we heard from, from two young men, um, Ryan and Luke Hart, who were, were over in Ireland and were talking about, they put, recently published a book about their own father's killing of their mother and their sister and then his suicide. And they they had no idea, they had actually supported their mother to leave that relationship, but they had no idea that separation was risk. And even those simple things can make a difference over time. So that if somebody is thinking about leaving us to contact the domestic violence services, to ring our helpline and to start to talk about how they actually deal with that and plan for that to increase their safety around this increased time of risk. And you obviously will help them through that time and yeah. uh, that's a, a free phone helpline uh, which is open 24 hours a, a day. We should give it to people now as well, Margaret. one eight hundred three four one nine hundred. Yeah, and if I can just say that we mm. also have, because a number of people won't, English won't be their main language, is we of also course. have 170 languages available so that people can talk in their own tongue. Okay, thank you indeed, Margaret Martin. That number again is one eight hundred three four one nine hundred. Margaret Martin is uh, the director of Women's Aid. Now, the Good Friday Agreement is not sacrosanct, uh, according to Arlene Foster, which has given much concern uh, in terms of uh, the peace process, especially uh, as fears mount in terms of a hard Brexit, with uh, the UK possibly crashing out of uh, the European Union, returning to world trade organisation rules and indeed with that uh, the return of a hard border on this island on this side of uh, the border we know that we have an understaffed police force uh, working in dilapidated buildings where equipment is not available to Gardaí and indeed Garda cars are not being replaced all of this is concern let's hear more now with retired detective inspector Pat Murray uh, who was based in Louth and uh, obviously has a better handle on all of this and the consequence of, consequences of it uh, more than most of us. Uh, Pat Murray, good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Is there reason for concern? Michael, yes, uh, indeed there would in, in respect of a hard uh, Brexit or having to man the border. If you just take Dundalk District alone, there are 36 border crossings in South Armagh, 36 and if they had to be manned, uh, you would have to put at least uh, two personnel uh, on each border crossing. And that would mean uh, dedicating two people per day uh, from each unit. There are five units uh, um, uh, in the roster system in Nangarishiakana. And that would mean approximately an increase of 360 personnel would have to be found uh, to man these posts. And that, would, that doesn't include, let's say, armed backup that would have to be provided plus uh, the immigration issue and uh, uh, extra personnel for that end of things. So I think it's it's sort of a stretch of the imagination like, to be able to uh, uh, pluck 360 men out of the, the, the air to, to, to man a border. Like, and, and that's just Dundalk district alone. And the option is to close roads? Well, that would be... I, I think nobody wants that, and I think that would be... Uh, 
really going taking a step back than than anything else, you know. Um, uh, but there may be, be no other option. Well, there may be no other option, but uh, I, I think that as it is, as it stands at the moment, with the free flow of people. North and South, it really suits everybody, really, like, you know. As as it stands, it's probable that there would be no other option. That is, at least if you believe what the government is saying in relation to this, and that they're looking for solutions east-west, but don't contemplate a hard border and aren't looking at solutions as a result north-south. Well, that's correct. But apart from just the, the, the physical border crossings, there's also, from a policing perspective, the relationship that was that does exist now between the PSNI and Angardashi Akana, would that be effective? Would we be able to uh, conduct our policing business uh, with the PSNI in the free, free flow let's say, atmosphere that exists at the moment? And I can give you some very good examples of that in respect, even just as, as, as recent as yesterday. Um, a man was convicted of two, two murders in Ravensdale Park. I was investigating officer for that particular case. And I know that we relied heavily on the uh, cooperation from the PSNI to glean evidence uh, in respect of that particular case. And it involved a Garda Shia travelling north to acquire, um, with the permission of the PSNI, of course, to acquire evidence in the, in, in the case and also to reconstruct um, uh, uh, CCTV analysis of vehicular movement with a with an expert company from London from from Bristol. So I'm just wondering mm. if that type of cooperation would be somewhat hindered. I think it would be uh, because I don't think the Hungarian economy would have the free passage to cross the border in the way they have now uh, with the cooperation of the PSNI. Just in relation to that case, I, I assume uh, there was a, a sense of satisfaction on your part to see justice being served. Uh, I was reading in the papers that you were outside of uh, the Central Criminal Court yesterday when Jason O'Driscoll was handed down that sentence and uh, you were saying that you hoped that the result would be of some comfort to the families that they were upset but satisfied and that maybe they'd get some solace and move on with their lives. Yes, indeed. Like since I was detective inspector from 2010 to 2018 uh, in the Loud Division, and in that period of time I dealt with 12 murders and uh, a number of kidnappings and serious rapes and that. And I can say that in all cases where uh, they end up in court and someone is convicted, um, you know, murder is a murky business. It never brings back their loved one, but it does, uh, and I have seen it over the years, where people, when they are sentenced, there is a little bit of um, uh, hope that people can get their lives back on track again. Families can put some sort of, uh, you know, stop to what the pain they're feeling and to move on, you know. They feel justice is done on that. And this is one particular case where um, we were left initially with a burnt-out car and two skeletal remains, and uh, from the outset, one would think, God, this is one that may never be solved, you know, because there's very little evidence left at the scene. But uh, through perseverance, uh, good teamwork, cooperation with the PSNI, as I said, uh, and a dedicated team in Dundalk of detectives and uh, uh, the guys I had on my team, we spent three years uh, uh, before we got to a, uh, a situation where we could complete file and forward it to the DPP looking for charges, you know. 
All right. Uh, and when you speak uh, about the border and uh, the 36 crossings and how uh, the uh, county of Louth would need an additional 360 Gardaí as a, a result of a hard border, I think that pans out at a, about 1,000 a Gardaí across uh, the border north-south, doesn't it? Well, it probably would, yes. And so, like, like where are those members going to come from? Uh, they're just not there. That's it. And that that doesn't take into account a resurgence of violence, does it? Well, uh, it would be a, a concern that, uh, like, in my period of time there in Dundalk as detective inspector, I have seen, uh, and like, you know, dissident activity being. Uh, um, brought to a close by very good uh, work by the Special Detective Unit in Dublin and and their cooperation with the BSNI and quite a lot of, uh, let's say, dissidents were put out of business uh, which led to uh, peaceful periods. Uh, one always has to be aware that that republic or that uh, uh, dissident element is always there and a hard border I think would play into the hands of these mm. people like, and I would that would be a worry? Yes. You retired as uh, detective inspector, I think, in May, leaving you freer to speak today, Pat Murray, than yes. would have otherwise been the case. Are you concerned about uh, the political temperature at the moment? Well, uh, I don't think anyone knows how this is going to really pan out, but it, it is it is uh, looking that there's not going to be an agreement. But like these political situations can be plucked out of the, you know, at the last minute where there's uh, maybe deals going on behind the scenes that we're not aware of. But if there is a hard uh, border, uh, it's not going to be uh, good for in policing terms. And I don't think it's going to do the, uh, the people on the border, the north or south, any good, you know. OK, listen, thanks indeed uh, for taking some time to talk to us this morning. Yeah. That's retired Detective Inspector in Louth, Pat Murray. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the Central Statistics Office, as uh, you know, published its uh, crime statistics uh, this week, showing an increase in most categories for the second quarter of the year. There's been a 10% rise in uh, the number of sexual offences, and we'll talk about this now with Grace McCardle, who's uh, the manager with the Rape Crisis Northeast. Uh, good morning to you, Grace, and thanks for joining us. Before we talk about the increase in sex crimes, perhaps you'd like to tell us uh, the good news and uh, how you're operating out of new premises in Dundalk this morning. Good morning, Michael. Yes, um, on Monday we had the official launch of our um, new premises, the iconic Great Northern Distillery building just on the Carrickmacross Road. Um, So we were fortunate um, to have been given the opportunity to lease these premises from the very successful entrepreneur John John Teeling, who whom I'm sure you know is the owner of the the distillery factory and many other successful businesses. Um, so the launch was um, offici- the, the building was officially launched by Minister Heather Humphreys, Minister for Business, Enterprise and Innovation, and um, we had our guest speaker Lavinia Kerwick, um, who was recently on RTE for No Country for Women. Um, so the reason behind this is we just wanted to highlight to people our new location, our new premises, our new facilities. Um, because part of that launch is that we're highlighting we um, we are seeing young people from the age of 12, both girls and boys, 
and we have um, a, a newly refurbished room speci- um, specifically tailored to young people's needs and that you know we're, we're happy to offer to other people and other services mm. out there who may be working with young people because we're so conscious um, that there are so few services working with children as young as 12 who have been sexually abused or raped. And quite possibly feeding into those statistics that I mentioned uh, to the outset. And I gather that's an unfortunate necessity, but great at the same time that you're in a position now to be able to offer that service and indeed all of the services uh, that you are offering locally because uh, you've come a a long way. It's not actually that long ago since we were talking about the prospect of you having to close down. That's right. I mean, in 2016, um, the board and myself... um, we had many meetings um, looking at the possibility of closure because in our previous location, um, it was just the premises were just inadequate for clients' needs and for everything that clients went through. It wasn't fair that, you know, although we did the best with the resources we had, um, they deserved better. Um, and it was just by pure luck, really, the opportunity um, of these new premises came um, and it really, it really certainly... Um, is so helpful for clients in terms of it's beautiful counseling rooms, very large building, very calm, very quiet. Um, so it, it and since we moved to this building, it we've really been given great opportunity to to develop our services and to grow our services. Um, and one of the things we did, one of the things, several things we did highlight from the launch was, I suppose, um, the other needs um, of the services. You know, we have a a service in, in Drogheda, in Drogheda Medical Clinic. We have a service in Casa Blaney, um, but we have no services in Meath. We have people from parts of Meath having to take three buses to get to our counselling service to receive one hour of counselling and three buses home again. And really, this isn't good enough. So we were able to use the launch um, as a platform to highlight these needs and also the need to increase our services in, in Casa Blaney and here in Dundalk. And again, Cavan. There's nothing in Cavan. Um, and what we're trying to do is set up another service along the border of Cavan um, to be able to at least facilitate, facilitate part of the area um, because there's absolutely no service in Cavan for, for, for people who've been raped or who have been sexually abused. Okay, and if uh, people... Uh, would like to speak to somebody. If somebody listening to us would like to speak to somebody, you're there, you can speak to them on the telephone or they can come to you for counselling as the case may be. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. They can contact us on our free phone confidential helpline number 1800 21 21 22. Um, our lines are open from 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. Um, and after ours, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre will be available to them also. All right, that's one eight hundred twenty one twenty one twenty two. Thank you indeed, Grace McArdle, manager with uh, the Rape Crisis North East. Now it's Wednesday morning, and uh, the local papers have all been published. Marie Kearns has them in front of her, and she's going to tell us a, a little bit about what's on the front pages. Marie, what have you got for us? Well, if you're uh, an animal lover, Michael, the story on the front page of the Dundalk Democrat will definitely tug at the heartstrings. It's leading today with a story that. Dundalk Dog Rescue has reached crisis point and has been forced to turn away dogs due to lack of space 
and resources. Long-term volunteer Pamela Shevlin told reporter Tia Clark that they are caring for 30 dogs in the shelter but have to turn away any new dogs. And she's appealing to local people in Dundalk to step up and help. Okay. Moving then to the Argus. Uh, the, the big story in the Argus this week concerns fears that the diesel marker has been cracked by illegal feud launderers. And that's the page one story of the Argus newspaper after a tanker dumped in the Dundalk area was reported to have shown no evidence of the marker. Olivia Ryan is reporting that the tanker was discovered outside the town just two weeks ago and has led to concerns that the marker has been removed from agricultural diesel. Okay. To Dundalk Leader then, and that's the story that everybody has been talking about the last couple of days, Michael. Fitz are on a solo run as McGahan steps in, and it's the big political story in Louth that everyone's talking about. Okay. <laughs> um, we'll move on then, if we can, to Drada. Sure. Uh, worried residents fear road tragedy and that's the front page headline of the Drogheda Independent and the the residents reporter Alison Common is referring to are from the Marion Park area in Drogheda and they are basically taking matters into their own hands the story reports to try and prevent a tragedy on their own doorsteps to coincide with Irish Road Safety Week a petition and a protests are underway to highlight the dangers speed motorists, buses and lorries are causing in the established estate. Resident Noel Smith says the vehicles of all sizes are speeding through the estate, using it as a rat run or to avoid paying the toll and with lots of children out, play, lots of children out playing the drivers, he says, need to slow down. Okay, very different story then on uh, the front of uh, the leader. What's uh, Conor McGregor making news over in Drogheda? Yes, the notorious doesn't always make headlines for the right reasons, Michael. But this week in the Drogheda leader is a good news story as Ian Waters reveals that the fighter showed he has a big heart by donating 10,000 to a sick Drogheda child. Gráinne McCullough set up a GoFundMe page with a target set at 10,000 to get care for her five-year-old son, Brian who she said has been left unable to walk or eat due to sepsis. And she was astonished when one person donated the full amount. And as you can imagine, she was left totally surprised to find out that it was none other than the MMM. MMA star McGregor. So there you go. All right. Okay. Well, no doubt uh, she'll uh, get the chance to thank him personally. Uh, what's happening in County Mead? Uh, they're focusing on the views of a very young person. Yes, this is another good news story and I suppose another heartwarming story on the front page of the Mead Chronicle and it's about seven-year-old, a seven-year-old Rathoth boy, Victor Clark, who has asked his club if they could host a charity match to raise money for Matter Clun Club. And of course, everybody knows, or if they were listening into this show, they will have known what happened there about the subsidence, which has left the County Monaghan home, Club homeless. And Victor touched the hearts of people in both clubs and beyond with his letter, which has asked his own Ratho GAA club if they had heard what happened to the pitch and could his under sevens play their under sevens in a Meath versus Monaghan clash to help raise money for the club. The letter, Michael, has gone viral since it was published according to the Chronicle and now moves are underway to make his idea a reality. 
So there okay. you go. All right, and That's it's front the, page news. Yes, the GAA family coming together. All right, thanks for that, Marie. Interesting stories there. Maybe people want to make comment on them, and if they do, uh, you'd be glad to hear what they Absolutely. have to say because uh, you'll be coming back to us in a, a few minutes' time with uh, some of uh, the comments uh, that have uh, come to us uh, this morning. That is, if you'd like to comment on what's on the front page of uh, the papers uh, today, or if there's something else you've been hearing, or if there's a matter that you'd like to raise with us, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1855-715-958-1855-958-1855-958-1855-958-1855-958-1855-958-1855-958-1855-958-1855-958-1855-958-1855-958-1855-958-1855-958-1855-958-1855-958-1855-958-1855-958-1855-958-1855-958-1855-
it's a real big, it's, it's a serious achievement, the fact that so many of the political parties have joined under this motion today. Um, and, and I think, you know, what's really important about it is in terms of this right to housing, you know, housing isn't a choice without having a, a permanent, you know, secure place to live. Lives fall apart. And, th- and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the harm that homelessness is doing to families, to women, to men within our society. I mean, it really goes to, to the fabric of, of our society in terms of having that secure place to live. And then, and then you can move on with other parts of your life. But at the moment, families are just caught in this circle, which is absolutely devastating. And, and I think absolutely all parties should be behind it. But also, more importantly, the government needs to change their policy. And that means really moving forward on building social housing. Um, and and I, think, I think one of the problems at the moment is that we're caught in this situation where the government is supporting, you know, is supporting people to access private rented accommodation, but rents are soaring. So we're investing there rather than investing in actually building more houses and building houses on the scale that's needed to meet this homeless crisis. But providing housing to people who need it through the private rented sector... Well, the issue within the private rental sector, I think that's key, is, is, is that people have security because right now you can, you know, and I mean, we've seen this in families and women have contacted the Women's Council about this where, you know, they've moved into into place and then the landlord says, well, it needs to be done up or it needs to be sold on or, and then they're moving again and they're moving again. And it is so difficult for families to find then secure accommodation and also accommodation that's near near their community life, near the, near the schools of their children. So it's a vicious cycle that families are caught in. So security of tenure is, is absolutely key and it's something that we don't have. And at the same time then, we're investing hugely in terms of paying these soaring rents. So there's something seriously wrong with the model that we have and the investment needs to be weighted into actually building homes for people. And many families are single-parent families, uh, as we mentioned earlier on. Many of uh, those families are headed up by women. Are women more vulnerable than uh, couples are or uh, families that are headed up by males? Well, yes, we're certainly seeing that the majority of families that are homeless at the moment are lone parent families. And, you know, and that makes the struggle so much more acute when you're one parent and you're trying to manage this whole situation of trying to find accommodation, of being shunted from place to place and also trying to bring about some sort of normality and routine to your children's lives, which is absolutely impossible. And I think, you know, we're doing such harm and damage to families right now, but also for the long term. We've got up to 4,000 children who are homeless. I mean, you know, it really is a shocking and appalling figure. And, you know, what are the long term impact, you know, what is the long term impact that that will have on their lives into the future? And that's why, you know, because one of the things I think we hear a lot about when we're talking about the housing and homeless crisis is that, well, of course, everything takes time to come into place. Mm. But these children don't have years to wait. They need the supports now. And can it be done that quickly? And as you say, that is the argument, but it's an argument that's coming from credible sources, uh, from uh, the government, for example, uh, which will tell you that motions don't build houses and that they're throwing all that they can at this. They're investing billions and their intention is to provide 50,000 families with homes by 2021. Yeah, but we're, we're not seeing the numbers of houses being built that need to be built. And, and we do need to tackle the slow, slowness of it because, as I said, families don't have years to wait. So we, we need to build more. And I mean, I think that's key. And then we also need to tackle the, the security issue so the families are not 
being being evicted because that's what's happening now and that's adding you know that's adding to the homelessness crisis for them Mm. so we need to slow down the numbers of people who are moving into homelessness and we need to to rapidly build social housing but on, on the scale that's needed not in terms of the small builds that at the moment that we're looking at. We are building more. I mean, this is the argument. You have to be patient. You have to give us time. That's the argument the government is putting forward or you could put that another way and say that the government is doing its best. Are you suggesting if that's the best they can do that perhaps they should let somebody else do the job because perhaps they could do it better? Well, I think right now they are relying on um, private builders to do the building. And I and certainly we know from, you know, local authorities around the country that, that local authorities can build and, and they need to be in a position to build. And, and that's where some of the change of the policy needs to happen. But either way, you know, no matter what the government say they're doing, it's not working and homelessness is increasing and we need to put a halt to that now. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, People are asked to meet at half past 12 today outside of Leinster House if uh, they want to support the Raise the Roof campaign. Orla O'Connor is uh, Director of uh, the National Women's Council of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to all our listeners. Marie from Drogheda was listening in to the interview at the top of the programme with Margaret Martin, Director of Women's Aid, and she says that it's about time there was a change in the law to prevent a husband or wife who have killed a spouse from reaping the rewards, as she puts it, from the sale of a family home. If someone kills, they shouldn't get a penny, maintains Maraid. Sean from Dundalk, on the same kind of wavelength, says that nobody should get a cash windfall after killing their wife, husband or anyone else for that matter. This is long overdue. Or for getting someone else to kill them for you. Uh, Maliki was in touch from Knockbridge and says that the government brought in NCT tests on old cars a few years ago and yet many Garda cars he feels are not fit to be on the roads. Well, I imagine many of them aren't if uh, they're taking them off the road at 300,000 kilometres. But at the same time, I'm sure like all vehicles, they have to pass the NCT. Uh, Thomas was in touch regarding that interview with the former uh, Detective Inspector Pat Murray to say that he's absolutely right. Think how tough, Michael, it would be to monitor a hard border with all of these crossings. It will be a huge drain on Garda resources. Well, that's if uh, all those crossings uh, remained in place. Uh, I think uh, the likelihood is that in the short term, if this happened all of a sudden, uh, which could very well be the case, a lot of those roads would have to close. Marion asks, why don't we just leave the EU with Britain? Uh, This way we would be able to keep the border and the free flow of people open. Uh, argues that the most imports and exports are from England and the EU has done no good for us. You can't beat a good neighbour. Okay. So there you go on that one. Uh, On election posters, Charlie said that he was very annoyed yesterday morning when he was walking his dog and he saw election posters in an estate in Navan. He thinks that posters are a blight, an eyesore and a waste of people's time. Oh, I don't know about (laughs) that. I think everybody loves election posters. (laughs) Go way out of that. Uh, John from Navan uh, says that houses that are boarded up should be offered to people with no homes for free while they are renovating them. Um, they do the houses up themselves instead of paying rent. So in other words, the people that take them uh, over do them up. 
uh, on the presidential election. Theresa from Dundalk says the money involved in running a presidential election will be better spent on the homeless people or people lying on hospital trolley beds. Leave Michael D where he is until things get better in Ireland, says Theresa. Right, well, I suppose it's not exchequer funding that uh, runs these campaigns uh, and uh, it does appear as though you need to be pretty wealthy if you want to enter into the race or know somebody who's pretty wealthy. On uh, the Raise the Roof demo today, Damien from Dundalk says that it says that it says it all that so many groups and political parties are coming together for this demonstration. The housing, the homeless problem, Damien feels, could bring this government down and it could be in the hands of Louds Peter Fitzpatrick if he votes against the budget. I'm not sure that it will bring the government down. I'm not sure that people really care about it that much. Do you not? No, I think people, you know, are shocked and horrified and all of that. But I'm not sure they care about it that much that they'd vote Mm. in a a certain way because of it. I know. Well, Liz phoned in from Drogheda. Liz says that she's lucky that she has her mortgage paid uh, paid up Hmm. and therefore she owns her own house. But she says that she feels a huge amount of sympathy and compassion and anger for those who can't afford to rent, Michael, never mind be able to afford Hmm. to buy or ever own their own house. It seems to her heard that from listening to this programme and other programmes, everyone is talking about the problem but very little is being done to rectify it and Liz believes that rents should be frozen for the moment. She thinks that landlords are getting enough money as it is and they mm. shouldn't rise any further. Yeah, well, I, as I say, I'm not sure it's that much of a, a, an issue to people. Uh, I think it was the last budget uh, we were asking government representatives why was it that they were giving people back an extra fiver in their pay packets when that meant very little to people instead of putting it into housing. Uh, But maybe it meant an awful lot more to people than I thought. Uh, And I think it was the year before that uh, we were asking uh, government representatives why they were giving Mm. people earning more than €80,000 the equivalent of uh, the cost of a holiday to Lanzarote uh, rather than putting the money into housing and uh, Maybe the holiday in Lanzarote was more important than the housing. It's shocking and terrible and all of that mm. as it is. Uh, and uh, I know that people are very uh, upset about it, but I, I'm not sure that it matters that much because if, if it did, uh, then uh, I'm sure that something else would have happened. Either the parties who are in power would have acted differently because mm. people would have said to them, look, we want you to do this rather than giving us the fiver, or people would have voted for somebody else. Well, Jean from West Dublin... 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Contacted us and John would love to be able to go to the march today in Dublin, but says that circumstances won't allow it. But he says that he has grown up, he has grown up children living in Dublin and he can see the pain and anger in their faces. He says that they are renting, they can't get a mortgage and are working simply to pay off someone else's mortgage. John said that he has had to mind his grandchildren because they are not able to afford childcare. Now he says he hears that it looks like Fianna Fáil might not be supporting policy for housing change. He said if that is the case, he will never again vote for them. All right. well Fianna Fáil will tell you motions don't build houses and what they're doing is negotiating with uh, the government and as part of uh, the budget negotiations uh, which have been going on for 11 or 12 days at this stage. Uh, They're hoping that uh, a number of measures will be announced uh, next Tuesday that will help to solve the problem and will build houses and that's the Fianna Fáil argument and they're saying that they're not supporting motions because the stock uh, slogan as it is Mm. at this stage is that motions don't build houses. Another listener was in touch and says Shane Ross's granny flat idea is a good one. And that's for anyone who hasn't heard, that's been reported today that a grant for an elderly person to convert their home into two separate housing issues is now apparently a key demand of the Independent Alliance as the budget talks intensify. And Brendan is saying that it is a good idea. I'm just wondering about planning permission there when I hear that straight away. But he also feels that does the multi-euro worth of land that the Catholic Church owns, could they not consider building small developments on them? He says it has worked in the past and he thinks that you could have um, land that's owned by the church in the centre of many towns that could be used, say, for fall, small developments of even 12 houses. And he thinks that, that should be looked at. OK. So that's another interesting suggestion. Going back to the Peter Fitzpatrick story, Michael, uh, we had a listener in touch to say that uh, as far as this listener is concerned, and this is Jim, who says that Peter Fitzpatrick, he feels in the last 24 hours has been given lots of mixed signals. On one, on one hand, he's saying on your show, Michael, that he'll only vote for the budget if it's the type of budget that he wants and it's not squeezing middle income people but yet he's reading today that uh, he has told Leo Varadkar that he will vote for the budget so Jim is just wondering which will it be Okay let's uh, talk now about uh, the reports into uh, the cost and feasibility of undergrounding or overgrounding the north-south interconnector the overhead line is uh, the best technical solution and the most effective for consumers of According to these reports uh, that the government commissioned uh, that were published yesterday, Porrick O'Reilly of uh, the campaign group uh, against overgrounding the lines NEPPC, the North East Pile and Pressure Campaign Group, is on the line. Good morning, Porrick. Uh, I suppose uh, this was inevitable. Uh, good morning, Michael. Um, from our standpoint, uh, the report really uh, is just a repeat of what was looked at in 2012. And as you know, we outlined at the very beginning that there was no value in being involved in this if the government were not going to look at the proper terms of reference and broaden it out to a proper analysis of undergrounding. So for us, there's nothing new in it and it doesn't advance the, the challenge for Airgrid or for ESB 
uh, one inch in terms of uh, facing up to reality on the ground in relation to the uh, the need to look at undergrounding. And uh, the sooner they start doing that, the sooner they can move ahead. All right, uh, but uh, they have gone through the process of examining it uh, following on from uh, that Fianna Fáil motion. It's been a, a question of going through the motions, it would seem, uh, from the government's perspective to be seen to have done something uh, because it was said from the outset that they were ignoring the trust of the motion and that the outcome of these reports would be exactly what has happened, that they would reject the arguments to underground the lines. Yes, Michael, exactly. It goes back to the initial terms of reference were broad and they were inclusive and many people were, were, were happy that uh, if they were adhered to, there would be a, a proper adult look at, at this project from everyone's perspective, uh, from the public side, from airgrid side, etc. But what uh, the government started to do was try not to do the study to start with, and then they narrowed it down to uh, a single area which mm. we have covered before without going over all the... Uh, well, yeah, there's no, very little point again, in it. I mean, it's all, it's been talked over a million times. The, yes. the, the conversation is long over-rehearsed at, at this stage. Uh, there's nothing of any surprise in this. It is as is expected. I'd be surprised if you didn't say uh, to us uh, that you reject the findings of this. Well, it's, it's not about rejecting the findings. It's, it's, there's nothing new in them, uh, yeah. Michael. I mean, the, the fact that overhead lines work... Uh, is not uh, something new. We, we, we've never disagreed with that from day one. Uh, but, but what we've always said is uh, they bring too much of a negative footprint to be acceptable to the public, and there has to be some compromise. Uh, and okay. that has yet to be uh, that's that stage yet to be moved on to by both the government. Okay, but I, I take it that these reports make the case for overgrounding the lines. And I, 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 if I can ask you the question I asked you a moment ago in a, a different way, uh, if these reports, if it's suggested that these reports make the case for overgrounding the lines, I gather you reject that. Yeah, we reject that. That's correct. We, we reject that because we they don't make that case and they don't make any, any case that's, that's new to us. Um, and they continue to refuse to analyse the real situation on the ground is that overhead lines will not be allowed and will not, are not acceptable and are not necessary. Mm. Uh, they do say it would be €450 million Euro more expensive to go underground. Uh, they say that for a certain type of line, Michael, with a very high rating. And again, the uh, expert commission were restricted totally in looking at purely technical aspects. It does not include all the other areas that we mentioned before, the impact on farming, the delay costs. You know, all of those things are not looked at. And it's like building a house with only looking at the cost of, of, of the building blocks instead of the whole cost of the house. And it's really uh, not a credible analysis to do in terms of cost. Okay, so... Um, and if you think, you know, many years ago it started out with 25 billion the cost. Now they're down to three and even the tree uh, cannot be argued properly because it's not looked at properly. So nothing has changed in that other than annoying the public in relation to doing a study that was sterile from the outset. Okay, but it it probably is seen as a step forward uh, in terms of uh, the government policy and the air grid approach. Well, I don't see any step forward in in anything that... In terms of the government policy and the air grid approach, Parik. I don't. I don't follow you, Michael, on that. I, I genuinely don't follow you. Well, I mean, does it not vindicate government policy, which is to overground these lines and uh, give no, the impetus to continue policy. with their uh, approach? 
you know, it doesn't vindicate government policy. I mean, I well, it'll be seen that way. Is what I'm saying to you. I mean, we could argue very easily, which the study says is that uh, undergrounding is a credible option, um, not just feasible, but a credible option. So that could easily be thrown back at the government in terms of if they really want this thing to be built, if it is strategically crucial, as they keep saying, there is a credible option acceptable to the public, which they don't want to touch. Okay. So it doesn't indicate anything other than their lack of uh, vision in wanting to have this project achieved at any near stage in the future. All right. Well, we'll be hearing more, I'm sure, in the coming hours, days, weeks, and uh, possibly uh, beyond that. But we leave there for the moment. And thanks, as always, for joining us here this morning. Park O'Reilly, spokesperson for the Northeast Pylon Pressure Campaign. Just very quickly, uh, if you have a, 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 another comment uh, that you want to bring to us, uh, Marie. Just a quick one. Um, Deirdre was in touch in relation to that story I mentioned in the Chronicle about Victor Clark, the, the young chap proposing that the charity match be held to help raise funds for the County Monaghan Club that lost their home. And and Deirdre said that it just cheered her up to hear that story and to think that a boy of just seven years of age could think of something like that. OK, thanks for that. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Sinn Féin in its alternative budget proposal is uh, suggesting uh, that an additional billion euro would be made available for capital investment in social and affordable housing. It's saying that welfare payments would increase by five euro that people on €140,000 would pay an additional 5% in taxes, said that there'd be €2 billion extra collected in taxes overall. And indeed, they say that they would open 500 hospital beds and help to solve the problems in health and housing. The spokesperson on finance for Sinn Féin is Piers Doherty, who's on the line. And good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Would you be willing to fund uh, the recruitment of the additional thousand Gardaí needed in the event of a, a hard Brexit uh, and on foot of Arlene Foster's remarks about uh, the Good Friday Agreement, uh, which, if it's not sacrosanct, puts the peace process uh, in jeopardy. Well, well, first of all, thanks for having me on uh, to discuss our, our vision and what should happen next Tuesday and in terms of our alternative budget. And I think um, the comments by Arlene Foster yesterday were, were reckless. It also showed her naivety and, and, and her lack of understanding in relation to the Good Friday Agreement. But it's probably not surprising given that, you know, Arlene Foster left the UUP as a result of uh, the Good Friday Agreement and what it encompasses and envisaged and joined a party that never endorsed that and has always been trying to hollow out that agreement that was overwhelmingly endorsed by the Irish people north and south. And it, it, it's, an, it's, it's simply not up for negotiation and will not be used as a bargaining chip for that reckless crusade that uh, the DUP and the Tory Brexiteers have, have engaged in. In relation to your direct question in terms of Garthi, our alternative uh, budgets um, does provide for an additional 800 Garthi. That's the maximum amount of Garthi that can be trained at any time in, in Temple Moore. And it, it's crucial that we get uh, our Garthi numbers up to an adequate level so that we can provide uh, security for people in their homes uh, and that we can uh, prevent crime and deter crime uh, as much as um, uh, 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 ensuring that those who carry out crime are, are, are caught and prosecuted. But that's in the country that we live in today where we have a, a fluid border and a, a peace process uh, and uh, the blueprint uh, for that Good Friday Agreement. If all of that turns on its head very quickly, uh, do you believe uh, that we'll be able to police the border? 
Well, look, we've made it very clear that the uh, you know a Brexit, uh, the Brexit scenario will cause major, major problems for uh, the Good Friday Agreement. It will create a huge imposition in terms of the border. Look, I come from a border county. You come from West Donegal. Every day that I travel to Dublin and uh, to the Dáil to my work, uh, I, I have to cross the border twice. Uh, and people are used to, and thankfully we are at a position where there is no checkpoints, there is no uh, security presence anymore in our border. Nobody wants to uh, to go back to those days. So our focus in Sinn Féin is very, very clear. We said it from day one. We need special status for the North within the European Union. We were dismissed by Fianna Fáil and Pina Gael at that time, but it is now policy across the European Union for special status for the North. It is now indeed government policy for uh, special status for the North. And while Fianna Fáil are arguing that we should prepare for a hard Brexit, our view is very clear that we do, we're not giving up on, uh, on, on reaching a deal that would see the North remain within the customs union in the single market because a hard Brexit will destroy uh, the potential of communities on both sides of the border and will set us back generations. And that's something that Sinn Féin uh, are, are campaigning very, very strongly against. You're proposing opening 500 new hospital beds. Uh, in what time frame? Well, we believe that those should be opened in, in 2019 and um, that we provided the resources for those hospital beds to be to be opened. These aren't new constructions. These are beds that have been closed uh, by the Fianna Gael uh, governments in the past and indeed the Fianna Fáil uh, government before it. Um, for example, I'll give you an example in terms of my own local hospital in a campaign that I'm deeply involved in. Uh, on average, uh, 19 people every day in 2018 lay in a hospital trolley in, in Letterkenny University Hospital. As they lay in that trolley, sick and in pain, without the dignity of having uh, a hospital bed and the privacy that comes with that, uh, within 100 metres of where they were lying, there is a ward with 19 beds that are that is simply closed. Uh, 19 beds that the management of the hospital want to open, but for the last year and a half, uh, the government or the HSE wouldn't provide the necessary resources to, uh, to open those beds. And, and that is replicated throughout uh, the hospital network. And it's not just in terms of um, the, our, our hospitals, but it's also in terms of our community hospitals, which is crucial so that we have step-down facilities that mm. uh, when people are ready to be discharged, that they can be discharged into beds in a community sector. Uh, and that provides a space for those to be taken off trolleys. But the, obviously the knock-on effect of that, if there is no beds in the hospital, then consultants can treat your patients, carry out the operations, and that's why we have over 707,000 people on waiting lists and those waiting lists growing. Fair enough, not but not how, how, how do you open new time. beds? I, I mean, I think the HSE and the trade unions would agree that one of the problems at the moment is recruiting and retaining staff. If that's the problem for the existing beds, how do you recruit staff for 500 additional beds? Well, first of all, in, in, in terms of uh, some of the beds that can be opened, uh, that 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 isn't just necessarily the case that it, they're they're not being opened because of uh, recruitment issues uh, in hospitals. And speaking to management, they are saying if they got the go ahead to open these beds, they would be able to recruit the, the staff. But there is a wider issue, without doubt, in relation to recruitment and retention of nursing staff. And you know, it, it is a scandal that we uh, train the best nurses in the world, uh, yet we don't provide the conditions for them to stay. In Ireland and there's better conditions 
happens elsewhere, and it's not just in the issue of pay, uh, but that is a very, very key area. But it's also the conditions where people work, and you know, like many of our any wards are, are, are war zone-like territories uh, where people are run off their feet, where it's you know it's not a, a, an environment, a comfortable environment to be working in. And um, so we need to do two things. First of all, we need to, as I said, increase capacity in the hospitals so that we make it a better place for our frontline workers to work in and for our patients to be treated. And the second part is we need to deal with the pay issue. And that's why in our alternative budget, we provide for pay equalisation over a two-year period starting in 2019, not what the government are proposing, which would see it stretched out to 2026. And the second thing is that there needs to be additional and specific measures for uh, areas where we find it difficult to recruit and retrain, uh, retain staff. And that is particularly in relation to nurses and doctors where uh, they are being uh, picked off by places in, in like London and elsewhere. And that's why we've provided a, a line item in our budget to look for a new uh, pay arrangement that would see the retention of, of, of nursing and, and specialised staff in our hospitals. And on the subject of pay, you're talking about increasing the minimum wage to 10.50, which I'm sure some employers wouldn't be too happy about. Uh, the public sector workers uh, would uh, be paid by the state and their employer would be looking at a, a minimum wage of 11.90, obviously uh, placing a further drain on the exchequer. But uh, you're talking about uh, raising money through taxing the rich, uh, I, I think, uh, is uh, the basic approach here, isn't it? Yeah, well, look, the, 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 you mentioned the living wage and the public sector should be an example and lead from the frontier. No, nobody working for the public sector should be earning under the living wage. The living wage is what it says on the tin. It is the amount of money that you need to just get by. And we know that there's far too many families in society that aren't just getting by. And so the living wage of 1170 is the threshold which we need to, to reach. And the first step of that is to introduce that in the public sector, but for the private sector to increase the minimum wage by 95 cents. Yes, there are businesses out there that may find that very challenging and that may not be able to actually deal with that increase. But there is a provision in the legislation, the existing legislation that allows for businesses to, to open their books and when they are tested uh, they are able to uh, if they can prove that that is not simply uh, doable for them uh, then they can provide a, 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 a reduced wage but as a principle we believe that minimum wage needs to be increased it would still be below what is required for a living wage but we believe that that needs to be reached within a number of years yes ta- you know there is a concentration of, of wealth in this country we've seen it from the controller and auditor general's report just last week we've seen high net worth individuals these are people with 50 million plus in assets that pay more to tax advisors than they do to the to the revenue. Uh, we know that they pay more less tax uh, in terms of uh, effective rates than somebody working in your local shop uh, or down in the hairdresser, and that is a, an absolute scandal. And that's happened because loopholes have been designed purposely into our legislation in the past that allows them to avoid or evade uh, paying that tax. So we're we're seeing clearly. For incomes above €140,000, that's 1% of people in our society, the top 1%, they should pay a high income levy of, of, of 5% on, on every euro that they earn above uh, the 140000 And for the other 99% of, of workers out there, we make a commitment that we will not increase your tax rates. But we need to use that high income levy to make sure that we invest in education, reduce class sizes, that we can provide the rent relief that we want where every renter in the state would get one month rent back over the next three years, coupled with a, a rent freeze. Uh, so they're the measures that we, we want to see, and, and that has to come from uh, revenue sources. But it's not just mm. income taxes, let me say. We want to end the, the, the privilege that was provided to the banks where 
We have some of the most profitable banks now in Europe. AIB raising over a billion euro, making billion euro in profit last year. Don't pay a penny tax here. We need to bring that back into international standards uh, so that they begin to pay taxes. And this is what this is how we can raise revenue uh, to to pay for uh, the areas of most in need in society and, and lift the burden and the, the, the cost of living pressures off ordinary families. Uh, and one of those areas I think uh, that you're concentrating on is child care. Tell us your proposals in relation to child care. Well, the, the, the scheme that was introduced by Catherine Sabone allows for a subsidy of, of the child care sector. The subsidy at this point in time is 50 cents. Uh, we want to increase that subsidy to €2.50. Uh, the average cost of the cost of providing child care uh, for a child is about €4.50 to €5. Euro. So if you increase it to €2.50, what it means for your listeners out there is people, uh, families who have children in a formal child care setting from the age of six months to, to three years, they would see their child care bills cut in half. And that's crucially important, not just in terms of how it impacts on them on their pocket, but it also has another effect. And this is very much a gender issue because it's primarily women who are, are forced out of the labour market uh, because they can't afford that second mortgage, which is the cost of childcare. So this increases the labour market, increases labour participation, uh, and it has a direct impact in relation to uh, equality, but it has a direct impact as well in relation to making sure that those families have more money at the end of the day in their pockets so that they can put a bit aside if they so wish for uh, whatever uh, rainy day may come in the future. Okay, well, we'll see how those ideas measure up against government thinking when Pascal Donoghue announces next year's budget on Tuesday of next week. And thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Piers Doherty is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on finance. Michael Reed on LMFM. It's Irish Road Safety Week and now we hand over to an LMFM campaign on road safety. Tony Toner is a training director with the Institute of Advanced Motorists of Ireland. Here he is driving around Drogheda with Marie Kearns. So we're coming up here now to uh, a major junction on, on the bypass. Always a dangerous junction, this one, Tony. I've come across a lot of accidents here. Yes, and the first thing you're looking at a junction is what it's controlled by, and it's controlled by a stop. And a stop means the wheels must stop rotating. And we're clear, and out we go. And when you're coming away from a stop, whatever, I'm going to go into just the offside lane, the right-hand lane, and we're going to take the filter lane up on the right to go down the main street here in Drogheda. And when I come up behind the taxi, and that's a service vehicle, it's likely to pull in to drop somebody off or to stop. You can see, Marie, I've stopped where I can see the rear tyres of the car in front sitting on the bonnet line of my car. Tony, I have to admit, I will hold my hand up. You're giving a lot more space in front than I would normally do. Well, this is called tyres on tarmac. Again, it's another tip for your people, and this being National Road Safety Week. Over 40% of all collisions are rear-end shunts. People tip in the back of somebody else. If you're up close to somebody, you have no reaction time. You're also taking in all the exhaust fumes in through the ventilation system of your car into your car. We're looking down into narrow West Street which goes on onto West Street. We're just at the Bridge of Peace for our listeners and again this is another very busy junction in the town. There's traffic coming at you in all directions isn't there Tony? There is but the thing about it is the dead time in other words the traffic flow ahead of us I'm looking down to see is there anything there there's a service vehicle nose in just beyond the old Garda station and you're looking to see is he going to reverse out so use the time that you're stopped to check for the road ahead and plan where you're going you know here we're going into an area we have pedestrians uh, left and right 
some of them may be crossing the road single pedestrians I would always check them out for having earphones in and if they have earphones in it means they're not listening and if they're not listening they're not attentive if they're not attentive that's a risk to us as a driver I noticed Tony that you're constantly observing and I suppose that's one of the key things you learn when you're a learner driver and you're going through all the instruction. You're observing but you're relaxed Marie, it's not a case of being in high tension. You can see what the car in front has gone up real close to the other car, didn't notice that the car was looking for the space in the left. I see that. We've left the gap and we're not involved in it. We just let them get through the shenanigans. You can see the pedestrians walking across. They've never looked. They're just too busy in conversation. So when you're in a built-up area, somebody else... You know, people are very casual about their safety. And a car is coming down, and the average car is a tonne and a half in weight. You know, some of the big SUVs are over two tonnes. And you even at 10 kilometres an hour, you don't want to get a graze of one of those. What we want to do is is go about our, our, our drive, get to the destination as we plan, and try and not get points on the licence, try and not get aggravated by somebody, and, and most certainly try and not aggravate anybody yourselves. I noticed there, just as we were passing, Tony, a pedestrian coming out between two vehicles to cross the road. You really have to have your wits about you to be looking around that you could miss a pedestrian coming out from between two vehicles. Without doubt, and the likes of here at Zebra Crossings, uh, and your zebra crossing is your black and your white. Uh, your pelican crossing is your traffic light controlled crossing. And then you have a thing called a toucan crossing. And the toucan crossing is where cyclists and pedestrians cross at the one place. And the chances are, Marie, you never heard of a toucan crossing in your life? No. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all over the country. It's where merging occurs between a cycle lane and a zebra crossing, or a pelican crossing. Well, there you go. You learn something new every day. You as a driver when you have passengers nobody opens the door until you tell them because you have access to all the view you have your door mirrors you have your rear view mirror that's good advice because often you have a packed car and people just open the door and they don't even look because they're not in the driver's seat absolutely and you know it's it's really very simple i'm just looking at the pedestrian here crossing and you can see there she's keeping a good look see that and that is, that's a rarity to see pedestrians. Even though she has the earphones in. Yes, but she should still be looking now yes. for traffic coming up the blind side. Because even though we're facing a, a red light, you have to, unfortunately, build into your driving that not everybody is going to obey the rules of the game. And that's the key, I suppose, to always be prepared. Here we're just allowing the car to reverse in and staying back from them, giving them the space in case they need to recorrect. If I go up further, I end up nearly being confrontational with the driver. And there's nothing worse than that, Tony, when you're no. trying to reverse. No. Because if you're like me, you're always a bit conscious on a main road when you have to reverse, that you're not slowing everybody down and you're not holding people up. So if somebody comes right behind you, it can be intimidating. Absolutely. And uh, like, there's nothing to be gained for the sake of... 10 foot of tarmac just stay that little bit further back we're just going to go left yes, here yes, and take the up. left and this is the Constitution Hill this is always the one you're afraid of when you're taking your, your driving lessons Tony <laughs> well these modern cars now I'm in this lovely little Volkswagen T-Rock now and it, it, it's one of the uh, small crossover SUVs that people are buying today wholesale and it's got hill hold on it and all that stuff so it allows you to come up stop and um, once you stop, 
uh, you can take your foot off the brake it'll hold it for three seconds and then you can drive away boom that's nice nice and smooth it's it's uh, you know cars today have a lot of electronic systems on them and they monitor what we do they give us a huge amount of information and people should really spend you know as much time as possible until they are totally at home with what their car offers them and that they know and if they don't know it they go back to their dealer and they get an explanation though so is that uh, coming at us in all directions here tony and we we have the right away here no 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 problem we'll we, we'll uh just look at the lady at here this, yeah, yeah uh, you know it's madness too when you see people pushing a pram ahead of them out onto a road just coming across without really taking note of what's around you i suppose there is there it's uh I, I have seen accidents with, with unfortunately, uh, children in prams and, and, and vehicles where the, the person forgot that the, the, they were literally pushing the pram out into the traffic flow. And uh, that is not a good day for anybody concerned, I can tell you. Um, you know, all we've got to do as drivers is note this sort of stuff, um, leave the space, and, you know what I mean, if you can use the horn as a, as a, as a, as, as a warning to, to other people or whatever coming in the area to not let a situation like somebody's lackadaisiness over over their safety or whatever is um, you know you'll see it all the time Marie uh, it's just complacency and it's the human condition um, like we're out driving today and we're looking at driver behaviour and we were speaking there about people being distracted pedestrians crossing the road maybe not looking around them in cars nowadays, though, is it not so easy for drivers to be distracted? Because it really is like a home on wheels now. You have the luxurious seating and you have the best sounds around and you have your mobile phone. You have everything at the touch of a button. So really, drivers have so much else going on in the car. Are you right, Marie? There is a huge amount of distraction available to us. But I come back to knowing what your car offers you generally held that five times more distracting in a car is a young child uh, and particularly one that may be ill or hungry or distressed in some way as children can be that can be very very distracting and and we are obviously the schools are back etc and children can be picked up and I would ask drivers not to put young children into the front seat of a car under five foot tall, under 12 years of age, they should be seated in the back. There is an airbag system in all cars. The likes of this Volkswagen T-Rock I'm in has a full complement of safety systems. It is five-star Euro NCAP. It is brilliantly safe car. But it's only safe if we use it correctly. And putting a young child in the front of a car where you have a double airbag on their side. The driver's airbag is roughly 60 litres. The passenger airbag is twice that. You don't want that airbag hitting a young child. And before there was ever airbags, I'm sure there's a generation of people listening now who remember the front seat where you are, Marie. That was known as the 75% seat. We're going up the Dublin Road now and just, this can be quite a... When there's two lanes like that merging, it can be quite difficult sometimes to yeah, hold your place on the road and yeah, get in safely. Fold in one after the other every second one. It's really simple stuff. And uh, look, no matter where you're going, uh, the rules apply no matter where it is. Like if you're people there doing their test and they spend a huge amount of time doing, doing the, the route, route, yes. And then the next day 
they could be driving in Galway, Cork, Donegal or Marbella or whatever. I mean, what's all that about? You know, when you're learning uh, how to drive, do that exactly. Learn how to drive. Don't just learn how to pass the driving test because the only person you're cheating is yourself. And thanks to Tony for taking the time to drive around uh, Drogheda. Tony Toner is uh, the training director with uh, the Institute of Advanced Motorists of Ireland and Marie Kern's report was part of the LMFM road safety campaign. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Gardaí say that Operation Catch is an intelligence-led operation which proactively targets people living in our community who possess, import and distribute child abuse material or child pornography on the internet. The third phase of this operation was underway this week. So far, a hundred and more premises have been raided uh, as Gardaí tried to clamp down on the exploitation of children. Over 30 uh, addresses in this third and latest phase. And let's hear more about it from Stephen Breen, who's uh, the crime editor with uh, the Irish Sun. And one of uh, the main targets in this particular phase, it would seem, Stephen, uh, is somebody who has been importing, uh, selling and distributing child sex dolls. Yeah, that's right, Michael. Um, this individual um, is one of one, over 100 suspects across Ireland who are suspected of engaging in the, the possession of uh, pornographic images of, of children. But um, just uh, last September, um, Gardaí had received intelligence from the FBI and from their other law enforcement agencies in uh, Europe that uh, child sex dolls, which were being made in China, uh, were being uh, distributed and were being sent to Ireland. So in relation to Operation Catch yesterday, um, which uh, and over, sorry, over the last 12 days, but it's the third phase of that operation, one individual was identified as someone who w- was bringing in uh, these dolls uh, to be distributed um, across Ireland. And uh, he, 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 the, the individual is a, a suspect from a normal uh, background. You, know, you, you have other people here who have been identified from all walks of life, mm-hmm. all professions, family uh, men, women as well. Teenagers, so but it is concerning that as, as a result of the the initial intelligence the Guardi received that someone here in Ireland is actively distributing uh, the, these uh, items, but and now a file will be sent to the DPP to see if there will be any charges. What, what are we talking about here? Blow up dolls uh, that uh, take uh, the form of children. Yes, we're talking like like, like dolls that are like, and they cost. Um, uh, when we, did, we we did an initial story on this when the warning was first sent out, and that they cost uh, at least uh, two thousand euro uh, just just for one item. They have a very uh, childlike uh, features there, you know, and they are dressed um, up as uh, as as children. I remember speaking to a rape victim when we did the story there last year, and she said this is very concerning uh, because you know this is you know once you know people who have these. T- Tendencies and who have intentions of abusing kids, if they start with the dolls, where is it going to lead to after this year? So uh, the fact that these dolls have now been seized here, there is a concern they were being distributed. And, and, and as part of this investigation, you know, Gardaí have also established that there are people working together in terms of sharing images between themselves and also uh, sharing these dolls. Uh, but uh, effectively, you're talking about plastic and mm-hmm. clothing. Yes. Uh, it's repugnant. Uh, it goes without saying. Okay. Uh, but what's legally wrong with it? 
Yeah, the thing is, because they do have, like in certain parts of the anatomy, it is on the, these child uh, dolls as well. There are certain um, components of it which, which can be construed and, and can be used, you know, by uh, people who, who, who want to uh, abuse children. It, it comes under the, the whole remit of, you know, a pornographic image of a child as well. So, you know, if someone is caught in possession of, of a doll, that can be construed as a, a pornographic image of, of mm. a child and, and relates to... But can it? I mean, this is going to be the legal question, isn't it? It is. I mean, that's where legislation comes in. But, you know, at, at the moment, you know, Gardaí are, are, are satisfied that, that they have um, uh, uncovered the, the, these items. and They, they do come under the, the legislation. So uh, people could receive a maximum five-year sentence uh, for possession of these images. But it's, it's not just the dolls. It's also the, mm. the other images of, of, of kids being abused. Well, well there's, there's, no question, there's no question about the pornographic images. I imagine with yeah. the dolls, because they are inanimate objects uh, that yes. there will be a legal challenge to that and people will yes. be saying what do you mean it's pornographic it's a, it's a piece of plastic it's a doll Yes, well, we haven't come to that stage yeah. yet. So obviously when it does come before the courts, there will be some legal challenges there. So that's when the legislation will have to be very uh, ro- robust. And it may require further legislation. It, it may uh, as well. So um, it's, it's, it's something that's it's, it's a grey area now. It's in the early stages. So it's again of waiting to see if the DPP does decide to, to prosecute anyone um, for possession of, of these items when it comes to the stage of, of appearing before the court during mm. the proceedings. What focus is that going to take? Okay. Whether they can take a, a successful prosecution or, or not, time will tell. But what yes. we do know for a fact is that these dolls exist and they've seized a, a number of them. Uh, they really are grotesque, or it is grotesque, to think that people would be uh, buying these things at €2,000 uh, in order to fantasise about having sex with children. Uh, I mean, the whole thing is beyond belief. Uh, but uh, tell us a, a, a little bit about the discovery and how they were being stored. Yeah, well, Operation Catch um, was first uh, launched uh, last February, and it was mainly dealing with um, the the online online exploitation of, of children from the Guardi's online child Explo- exploitation unit. So, as a result of that, and uh, Guardi primarily investigating the, distri- the distribution of horrific images and also the, the possession of images, they identified that these dolls, because of the tip off that they received um, from the FBI and from the law enforcement agencies, that they, they were in Ireland. So it was a concern because it's something that, that had never been seen here before um, and that's why they, they worked closely with, with Customs as well. So um, even when they were looking at the, the images and that was that was their focus, I mean mm. this is a major investigation, to establish another strand of that investigation was that these dolls were coming into the country. First of all, the concern was they may be coming here, they could be imported here from uh, from China but to find them here was a concern and one example that Gardy established initially as part of their intelligence that some of the, the dolls were, were coming in as uh, they, they were broken up and people had to put them together you know mm. and they were also being hidden in USB heaters as well so there, there were elaborate ways there to bring them into the country and, and to disguise the fact that, that they were being smuggled in. Right uh, and what's the USB link to all of this? Uh, are, are they using USBs to blow them up? Yeah, no, no. The USB heaters that they were they were using the dolls that they were hidden in boxes for USB powered heaters, and you know, and, and they can, and also including there were other accessories in there as well. 
you know, and and they were coming in uh, also in in packages of clothing and, and packages of, of wigs too. So that was just one mm. example, but there are, I'm sure, other ways that people are getting them into the country and trying to disguise uh, the actual content of of the packages that they're receiving. All right, and over a hundred raids. Uh, it speaks for itself in many ways. People from all walks of life, young and old, richer and poor. Uh, and you're reporting uh, this morning uh, that uh, amongst those uh, who've been questioned are uh, a well-known businessman and a former government official. Yeah, that's the story we ran earlier this year um, in the first phase of Operation Catch. And, and one of those arrested, uh, who was he was questioned, but a file will now be sent to the DPP as someone who had previously uh, done work for a government department. Another one was... Uh, was a businessman in, in a county in Ireland, and but every county in Ireland has been affected by this. You know, it's 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 across the whole country. But you've also people from you know Irish people here engaged in this activity, foreign nationals, teenagers, uh, professionals, people from all walks of life. And it, it was established that you know over a hundred suspects are actively you know downloading you know child pornographic images. I think it's it's a very reassuring message from the Gardaí because it shows that they are tackling this problem and they won't tolerate this type of criminality but I think that the vast majority of the cases here were where people were possessing these images and viewing these images they were looking at the dark net mm. uh, to view these images but uh, in cases where you know videos were being produced here it, it's not as big as, as it is in other countries and the Guardi also have a, a victim identification units which they work with Interpol and other agencies where they try and identify those children who, who have been uh, photographed in videos in such a brutal Way. All right. Many thanks for joining us this morning. Stephen Breen is uh, the crime editor with the Irish Sun and brings our programme to its conclusion. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing Ross Leahy for researching Chris Murray in the Control Tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.